Well, in God's providence, we have a very apt uh, section in Joshua uh, tonight when we will be celebrating uh, at the close the Lord's Supper. Because uh, not only do we have uh, at the end of chapter 5 the two parallel celebrations in the Old Testament, circumcision pointing to baptism, Passover pointing to the Lord's Supper, but also we have this uh, intriguing setting up of a cairn or cairns uh, as a memorial, as an act of remembering, which is very much at the heart of what a sacrament is all about. A sacrament is a visible sign and seal of God's covenant. Uh, It signifies God's act of salvation and in a, a mysterious and spiritual way applies these benefits to us as we are united to Christ. Now, at this point in the narrative, uh, the story slows down almost to an unbearable uh, slow pace. Uh, With the story of Rahab, the excitement increases uh, as we hear of the dread that has come over the Canaanites. Uh, We hear of the imminent uh, attack on Jericho by Israel. We hear of the way that Rahab will be delivered if she has that red uh, scarlet cord outside her window. And then we have a chapter which tells us about the crossing of the Jordan and then this strange pause. Just when we are getting ready for action, a strange pause where people uh, watch some cairn building Uh, The men have some painful surgery and everyone eats a special meal. And all of the time, we're waiting for the action. It's kind of seen that if if we were thinking about this in in, uh, film terms, and this was an action film, then it would cause frustration. We're waiting for the the battle to commence, and instead the camera uh, moves into the canteens. Uh, and you see the catering corps planning uh, the menus, or it goes into the munition store, and you're given a list of all of the artillery pieces, and you want the action to commence, and instead you get this detail. Everything slows down. But the implication, of course, of that, of this deliberate slowing down, is that what is uh, recounted here is very important. Very important. Just like the the tailpiece to chapter 5 that we didn't read, but we'll look at the next time, we're reminded that the battle will be won in the strength of the Lord and not by any human might. And so the pause is to underline the significance of these events, culminating in nationwide obedience to the covenant sign, the circumcision, and then the celebration of the Passover. Before God's people engage with the enemy, they must be obedient to the Lord of the covenant. They must do what they haven't done up to this point and take the covenant sign upon them. And before the angel of the Lord appears to Joshua, the Lord has already spoken through the symbols of circumcision and Passover. Sacraments and circumcision and Passover were sacraments are part of the means by which God fortifies his people. Sacraments are vital preparation for spiritual warfare. Without them, 
without the word and sacrament, we go into battle unprepared. Sacraments are so important that God presses the pause button on the video of redemptive history in order that his people might honour him by complying with the demands of his covenant for visible signs. God's people are given no option. Circumcision on an early baptism, Passover, Lord's Supper, are not matters to observe if they can be fitted into a busy programme. No, God shuts up shop and compels his people to attend to the important business of covenant obedience. Now, the reason we probably find it frustrating to have passages which uh, recount for us uh, these details is that we often pay lip service to the signs and seals. Uh, If we're honest, we really aren't that big on the sacraments. And we do uh, probably give them uh, much less weight than we ought to. We find it difficult to make room for them in our church schedules. And individually, we may be slow to respond with simple obedience to the command of God uh, of the covenant. And passages like this one make us take stock of how important uh, sacraments are, the signs that God has given us. So, as we look at at the passage, I want to make four points. Uh, First of all, sacraments guard against forgetfulness. Secondly, sacraments are of no use without faith. Uh, Thirdly, sacraments speak of God's saving grace. And fourthly, the sacrament of Passover at the end and Lord's Supper uh, tonight speaks of God's ongoing provision. So sacraments guard against forgetfulness. The first chapter is intriguing, isn't it? It's uh, not strictly speaking uh, sacramental, but God is giving detailed instructions uh, for an aid memoir, something which will trigger the memory. And in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 8, there are repeated warnings uh, given to Israel that when they go into the land, this land flowing with milk and honey, a land where they will go into uh, places where the, the vineyards are already there, where the fields are already uh, walled and, and everything is just to be occupied. The danger is that with prosperity, they will forget the Lord. And there is this repetition of remember, remember, remember. Don't forget when you're in the land. Do not forget, but remember the Lord. And it seems that in many ways, the real enemy of faith is forgetfulness. That we are prone to forgetting the amazing nature of grace. We're we're prone to forgetting just how sinful we are and how gracious God has been to us. We're prone to forget the many times when he has come and blessed us in the past. Same with marriage. How do some marriages fall apart? In some cases, it's not 
the uh, kind of blatant infidelity that will destroy a marriage, but, but forgetfulness. Forgetfulness of the preciousness of the relationship. Forgetfulness to nurture. And so, uh, even in our everyday life in the wider world, it's important for us to, to remember and have times and mechanisms which trigger our memory and provoke our thankfulness. At a very basic level, uh, one of these is the fact that we remember uh, the one thing that we can't remember, <laughs> which is our birthday. None of us have got any recollection of that particular day when we were born, and yet every year we celebrate a birthday. And uh, you know, we have cakes and we have cards and we have parties and so on. And it's significant, isn't it? Because it means that our life doesn't end up being just this blur without any division. But every year it's marked by the celebration of another, another year uh, uh, gone, another milestone passed. And it helps us to treasure life. Think of the way that we remember the great sacrifice of those who laid down their lives in the war. We have Remembrance Day. And interestingly, uh, in towns and villages across the land, there are not necessarily cairns, but memorials, war memorials. And sometimes the question is raised, you know, at such a distance from the last great war, is it not time to, to cease the annual day of remembrance? And of course, that's simply <laughs> the, the wrong question. That's when we need more than ever to remember uh, those dreadful times and the great sacrifice that was given. Holocaust Day, when we remember the fact that six million Jews were, were wiped out by the Nazi regime. And it's probably <coughs> becoming a, a bigger act of remembrance and it probably is more and more necessary as there are people who will deny that it even never took place. So we remember these things. And so, the Israelites raised a cairn. There are actually textual difficulties. Uh, they're not important ones, but they relate to whether there were two memorials or one. Uh, the 1984 NIV that we use in the church uh, opts for two, uh, in which case there was a, a memorial of 12 stones uh, in, on the riverbed, on the Jordan riverbed, where the people crossed over. And presumably, uh, this would have been a memorial which could have been seen, uh, certainly at low water <coughs> level of the river. And then another one where they camped at Gilgal. Uh, it's interesting that the, the recent uh, version of the NIV uh, opts for the one at Gilgal, and it uses the... Uh, the, the alternative rendering of taking stones from where they, um, they, they had crossed over from the, the riverbed to Gilgal. But whatever, whether it's two or one, uh, there was certainly one at Gilgal. And the important thing is that they raised this mark which would remind them. A physical sign that reminded them. And they called the place Gilgal because... God had rolled away the reproach of Egypt. And that probably means that 
uh, no longer could the Egyptians taunt them for not having come into that promised land. You know, 40 years in the wilderness, uh, the reproach was removed because they had arrived. And they are to take 12 stones and they are to make of the 12 stones, a representative from each tribe is to take a stone from the riverbed of the Jordan and to take it and to make a cairn. And the repetition of 12 is important because it's, it's reminding us of the unity of the people of Israel. Because remember, there was, there was one detail which threatened their unity because there were two and a half tribes that were going to stay on the eastern side of the Jordan. Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh had asked Moses if they could occupy the fertile pasture land east of the Jordan. And Moses agreed so long as they sent their fighting men to the front line in Canaan to engage the enemy along with the rest of their people. They weren't to set up a separate state. They were one Israel. And here was a a visible reminder of the unity of Israel. The 12 tribes had placed 12 stones uh, as a mark not only to God's faithfulness but to their unity as a people. And they're to set this as a reminder of God's might. A reminder that God is God over all the earth. And that God has therefore plans of blessing for all the peoples of the earth. So he does mighty works so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. And the people are to instruct their children. It's envisaged that in future generations, uh, a dad and his boy will be walking uh, along the Jordan. They'll be having a stroll. And the boy will see this, uh, this pile of stones and will say, Dad, what's that all about? What are these stones there for? What do they mean? And here will be the opportunity. The father will recount. Uh, he will tell them uh, the act itself. This is, this is where your ancestors crossed over the Jordan on dry ground. He'll tell them how that happened. Because the Lord, your God, uh, stopped the flow of the Jordan. And why he did it. So that all the earth might know that the Lord, your God, is mighty. He does mighty works so the peoples of the earth might know the hand of the Lord is powerful. And this constant reminder of the might of the Lord will preserve each generation of covenant believers in the faith. David Jackman, one of the commentators, writes, If the hearts of his people melt in loving gratitude and faithful service, they will never melt with terror like that of the pagan kings who know that they are on a collision course with Israel's mighty God of all the earth. So, just like these uh, memorial cairn sacraments serve as a reminder, our Lord has said, do this in remembrance of me. As sinners prone to forget, we will come and be reminded of the passion of Jesus, God's gift of love. 
to us. Secondly, sacraments without faith are useless. Uh, From verse 2 of chapter 5 to verse 9, we read of the circumcision of the Israelite males. And we're given an explanation why this had to take place. Uh, All the men of military age who had come out of Egypt had died in the wilderness. Those who had left Egypt had been circumcised, but those who were born in the desert were not. Now, we're not told that God had uh, rescinded the obligation to circumcise. There's nothing that says that God repealed it on a temporary basis. Uh, It was simply, it seems, neglected, and it was a serious omission. And God shows how serious it is that things are put right before any further action takes place in the Promised Land, and insisting that they are circumcised there uh, at Gilgal on the bank of the Jordan. (coughs) Circumcision, what was circumcision? Well, it was a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. And it's important to to recognise that. You come across uh, some, uh, some writers, some people who want to say that circumcision was first and foremost a badge of national identity. You know, the, the Jews, the Israelites, uh, are recognized by the fact they circumcised. Well, that's simply not true. Uh, because the Egyptians, for example, sac- uh, practiced circumcision. So it wasn't uh, a badge of national identity. Uh, why would people say that in any case? Why would people want to say it's a mark of Jewishness? Because of the implications of it being a a spiritual mark, a sacramental mark. Uh, In that context, uh, it is to be applied in the same way. uh, Baptism uh, would have to be applied in the same way as circumcision was. If circumcision was a sacrament and Baptism obviously is also. Colossians 2.11 and again Romans 4.11-12. Paul makes the point that circumcision and baptism are pointing to the same spiritual reality. They are both signs and seals of God's covenant of grace with his people. Uh, And the point is that since in the case of circumcision the sign and seal was applied to children, especially uh, specifically male children, eight days of age, baptism as the bloodless sacrament of the new covenant ought also to be applied to children. Circumcision was a sign of God's relationship with his people. Uh, Genesis 17. This is my covenant. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Verse 11. It shall be a sign of the covenant between you and me. And so Paul calls it a seal of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith while he was yet uncircumcised. Not a seal of Abraham's response, but to something God gave him and which Abraham received by faith. It's a sign and seal of the gospel. It's a sign and seal of justification by faith, of forgiveness of sins, of adoption, of union and communion with Christ, perseverance and holiness of the promise of eternal life. Circumcision and baptism are pointing to the same things. And therefore, the sign of circumcision replaced in the New Testament by baptism. And now applied to male and female within the covenant family. But speaking of the same things, as circumcision uh, did 
and bringing great comfort to the believer. Westminster Confession, uh, chapter 17, uh, one says of Sacrament of a visible difference between those that belong to the church and the rest of the world. The Israelites were taking on themselves a mark that put a visible difference between themselves and the people of the world. So it was a great sin for the Israelites to have neglected circumcision. But we need to notice in the other direction that circumcision, and therefore baptism, saves nobody. It was the, the generation that were circumcised that died in the wilderness and didn't enter the promised land. And there are plenty of people who have been baptised by sprinkling, pouring or immersing as an adult or as a child, who, because they have not a genuine faith, perished or will perish in the same way. Sacraments on their own do not save. And that's a really important thing to get across to, uh, even in our own tradition, because sometimes people get hung up about uh, either baptism or the Lord's Supper. Unless they're accompanied by faith, they're of no avail. But accompanied by faith, they're a real blessing. Uh, Martin Luther, who of course, remember, was baptised in the Catholic Church by sprinkling, uh, would look back on his baptism in times of crisis and uh, would say to himself in Latin, baptizatus sum. That's beyond most of us today to remind ourselves in Latin that we've been baptised, but that's what Martin Luther was doing. Uh, and he wasn't implying that there was anything magical in the water, but he did believe that baptism pointed to certain promises and assurances that God had made to whomsoever believes in Jesus Christ as their Saviour. So sacraments, is important to be obedient, but the sacrament doesn't save anybody. Thirdly, sacraments speak of God's grace. And there are a number of ways that we see that. Uh, Grace is where God steps in and does what we cannot do ourselves. Grace is where we get what we don't deserve. Grace is when God the Almighty comes to the aid of the helpless. There's a picture of our weakness and God's strength uh, in both the celebration of the sacrament of circumcision and of the Passover that follows. When you think about it, Uh, circumcising uh, the Israelite uh, army at this point was not brilliant military strategy. It was uh, almost a suicidal decision in a human way of thinking. What happened? The the, the men were uh, unable to fight for for days. Uh, It was a painful uh, aftermath. And because they were utterly helpless, they were therefore totally dependent on God's protection. Which is what sacraments point us to, isn't it? Points to the mighty energies of God working to lift the helpless sinner out of darkness and alienation from God, lifting them into his light and the embrace of the Heavenly Father. And all of this has been accomplished through the cross of Christ, to which both 
circumcision and baptism point. Paul again writes, In Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. At Gilgal, the people arrive, saved people under God at last, obedient in taking on the covenant sign. And so they call the place Gilgal, because here they were, God's people in God's land. The reproach of Egypt had been rolled away. And now that they have taken on the covenant sign, they can eat the Passover. Just as uh, ordinarily the first step is baptism, and then uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper, so in this instant. And just as uh, we, we now do those baptised in Jesus' name, those in whom the realities of what baptism has promised uh, have been evidenced in a life of faith and love and obedience, uh, and we come and we, we take the, the cup, reminding us of the blood of Christ, and we, we partake of his flesh, symbolised in the bread at the Lord's table. And we remind ourselves of what Jesus has done and is doing and will yet do. Sacraments are signs of the grace of God. And then, there on the banks of the Jordan, the people eat the first Passover meal that they have had since Sinai. So it's 39 years since they had a Passover meal. It took them a year to get to Sinai. And before the, the, next, uh, the next communion season came around, the next Passover came around, there had been the rebellion where they turned back on the border of Canaan at Kadesh Barnea. And the next generation were condemned to die in the wilderness. Now they have arrived at God's promised destination and with renewed covenant relationship expressed by their circumcision, the Israelites are now able to keep the Passover and experience covenant blessings. The same God who brought them out of the land of Egypt through the blood of a Passover lamb has brought them into the land just as he promised. And a new dawn has begun in Canaan because they now begin to enjoy the fruits of the land. The day after the Passover, they begin to eat uh, of the produce of the land and the next day, the manna, the manna that had continued are to be provided by God every day, day after day after day, except the Sabbath day, stopped. And from that on, God would continue to provide for them, but in an ordinary way. He would provide for them through the abundance that would come from the fields of Canaan. Dale Ralph Davis, in uh, his commentary, uh, makes the point that so often we 
we magnify the extraordinary and we minimize so often the, the ordinary and regular provision of God. And uh, he illustrates this with uh, an incident from the life of uh, John Witherspoon, who was actually, uh, he was a signatory of the American Declaration of Independence, and he was a Scottish Presbyterian minister. And uh, he became the president of the College of New Jersey and lived a couple of miles away from the college at Rock Hill. And every day he drove a horse and rig to his office at the college. Uh, One day, uh, Davis writes, one of his neighbours burst into his office exclaiming, Dr. Witherspoon, you must join me in giving thanks to God for his extraordinary providence in saving my life. For as I was driving from Rocky Hill, the horse ran away and the buggy was smashed to pieces on the rocks, but I escaped unharmed. Witherspoon replied, Why, I can tell you a far more remarkable providence than that. I've driven over that road hundreds of times. My horse never ran away. My buggy never was smashed. I was never hurt. God had been providing for him uh, in a less spectacular but equally uh, benevolent way. And that is so often the way of God. He provides for us through the work that he gives us, which sees uh, a wage check coming in every week or a salary every month. He provides us uh, with stable homes. He provides us with the joy of family, the fruits of the land. And as Christians, along our pilgrimage, as we are travelling, we are being given foretastes of the blessings which will be magnified when we finally have arrived. And we're going to sing about that now. As we sing uh, an old hymn uh, that speaks of our pilgrimage and of the fruit that God's people have on the, the way to